0: All of a sudden, we had, there was a large capital investment on bricks and mortar, and then everyone assumed that, oh, the arts institutions will just take care of themselves. And that's, that assumption wasn't a good assumption.
1: Hello, and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Carlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast. A production of the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we'll be speaking with bassoonist and president of the San Antonio Philharmonic, Brian Petkovich. And guess what? Brian is the Phil's inaugural president because the organization is only seven months old. The story of how it came to be birthed is why I was so eager to speak with Brian. You see, for a brief moment, in 2022, it seemed like San Antonio, the nation's seventh-largest city, might not have a major orchestra at all. On June 16, 2022, the 83-year-old San Antonio Symphony ceased to exist. Nine months earlier, its musicians had gone on strike to protest significant ensemble and salary reductions. And eventually, when the board and the musicians' union weren't able to reach an agreement... The symphony declared a Chapter 7 bankruptcy and shut down for good. The musicians, though, had not been idle throughout this tumult. While on strike, they had founded the Musicians of the San Antonio Symphony. They raised private funds and were therefore able to perform in spring and early summer of 2022 in venues throughout the city. And when the symphony's demise was finalized, the musicians set about creating a new permanent ensemble, appointing Brian as its first president. On September 16, 2022, the brand new San Antonio Philharmonic played its first concert to a rapt audience at First Baptist Church of San Antonio. The Fill is currently halfway through its season, which features a variety of works, including a world premiere by San Antonio-based composer Ethan Wickman, and also features renowned guest conductors, including past Art Restart guest Tito Munoz. I started the interview by asking Brian how he came to accept a position, namely president of a nascent classical music ensemble in 21st century America, that many might envy, while others might—I don't know—envy less.
0: So before I, I—it sounds like I've I've in, inflated myself to being like the president. Really, what, how all this came out about was a group of musicians got together and decided that we wanted to get back on stage after the pandemic and basically during this strike that we were on in. Well what early last year was when, when everything ended so basically we wanted to get back on stage I was basically put forward as the person to be president but it was really a group effort you know from the start and it still is a group effort and a lot of what I've done is basically reach consensus with a committee this is almost like governance by by leadership by committee so that's that's been an interesting part of this and probably a different part of it than like normal. That's what does not seem normal to me as far as the management and governance. It's really uh, much more collaborative on all levels than kind of the top-down CEO kind of mindset.
1: Leadership by committee. Yeah, that's definitely not the status quo in, I think, certainly in classical music ensembles, I think. Do you think it's sustainable going forward?
0: I think um, it's sustainable for a little while, but usually when this kind of effort starts, it winds up going back to like a normal governance and CEO kind of structure. And so I, I have no illusions about the fact that this is a, a transitional type situation like structure. And basically the transition away from what we're doing now, which is basically just startup to something that's normal, we'll take a little bit of time, but, you know, we're eyeing that. It's not like we're trying to hold on to some new model. But I'm guessing,
1: given what you and your community of musicians went through in the last couple of years, you're not going to want to replicate what the old normal was, right? Or am
0: I wrong? (laughs) Well, I mean, this is about people, willpower, and, you know, just the consensus of the whole community. It's not like, Just because you have X, Y, or Z person in charge doesn't mean that there's a huge change. So, yeah, I mean, basically, we want to have a little bit of self-determination as a musician and as far as how we build and go forward. But it's, you know, it's a community. It's a community trust.
1: So I, I do want to go back over the last couple of years. In fact, talk a little bit about the history of the symphony that filed for bankruptcy last year. Now, I know it had struggled financially for years, and I think filed for bankruptcy once before, right, in 2003, 2004, I think, and the pandemic only made things worse. So in that regard, the symphony was was similar to many other performing arts organizations in the 21st century, and especially through the pandemic. What happened, as I gather, was that the board, after negotiations with your union, the board demanded reductions in wages and the size of the orchestra that you musicians decided was unreasonable could you talk about why you thought it was unreasonable what what the board was demanding didn't make sense
0: so to go back to one of your earlier comments there there was a bankruptcy in the in in 2003 2004 and then basically we were Growing from that, we had a new performing arts center built to the tune of over $200 million. Where were the resident company that really it was sold as a home for the symphony. And, you know, that opened in 2014. Then really we were trying to grow and and really grow the ensemble. And there's always been kind of a paying for musicians as opposed to paying for venues like bricks and mortar versus people has always kind of been um, a little bit of a focus. And so really a lot of that was what does the symphony need to be in San Antonio and how does that look? And a lot of times like the, what I've seen over the 25 years that I've been a musician and been a musician board member, has been kind of a a transition parade of different people that want to really help out and change the symphony. But then uh, when they get in that position, they find not as much help from past people that have done that work. And that's basically what happened before the pandemic. And I don't think the pandemic was necessarily um, instrumental in what eventually happened. My feeling, and I think a lot of the feeling in the orchestra was that we were almost on the verge of of where we got to last year before the pandemic. And the pandemic was basically just a big pause over, over the whole world. As far as what's reasonable, it's not like, you know, and, and certainly one of the things I've learned is that the The board or the musicians or anyone, it's not like it's a block of people thinking exactly the same. And so really, the musicians are all very different people, have different lives. So it's more about what's acceptable, not what's reasonable. So, I mean, if if something is going to affect your life where it would be better to move out of town and accept other work, then you're going to vote no if you were just going to not accept the contract. So... I think it's not a matter of reasonableness, it's a matter of being acceptable and on an individual level, not on a group level.
1: You mentioned that over the years, you'd seen a um, transition parade of people who were there to kind of reinvent and support the organization, but they were not getting the support they needed. What could have been done? So where should they have gotten the support? What, What would that have looked like?
0: So basically I've seen a lot. So that's what I've seen basically like someone comes in and a, a new group or a, a new institution wants to come in and help. And then, um, the people that have gotten burned out basically take a step back and, and don't stay engaged. So this is about, like I said before, willpower and engagement. And that's, you know, across the board from all constituents, you know. F- funders, foundations, musicians, you know, the management and basically a lot of arts managers are half volunteers because it's not like you're going to make as much money doing this as something in the private sector. So, I mean, it's really about engaging people in the idea of what is possible and what we can, we, we, what can get done. So what went wrong? What
1: was not, what turned out not to be possible and what could not be done?
0: I think there was just basically a, um, you know, the, the continual decline of people that were burned out from seeing basically a string of crises. Whether or not those are financial crises or willpower crises is another question. I think the money is here, but then the will to spend it and see that return in the community is part of what I think needs to be raised. So certainly, like I mentioned, this $200 million investment from the community in a performing arts center supported by the symphony, you know, I think really the question there needs to be, you know, that money was spent to support performing arts. How is that investment capitalized on with the people that are operating in it? So, I mean, I always thought that the the model of how the Tobin Center is going to be looked at going forward. And frankly, in the past when it was, is started, you know, they focused a lot on building the building, getting it. It's a, it's a wonderful place, but then it's like, what happens in it? And that's the planning that I think really the community needs to address. In what way? How has it not been addressed previously? Well, what activities go on inside of that building as far as performing arts, both with working with the opera and the ballet and having um, having the Philharmonic be, you know, really the anchor of the performing arts situation in San Antonio. You know, they there's, there's been a large capital investment in, in bricks and mortar and the mindset needs to change of, well, if there's been this uh, investment in bricks and mortar, how do we invest in people and the artists that are making that work here in San Antonio?
1: Huh. Makes me want to ask you if, in the early twenty-first, twenty ten, you had been handed, handed that two hundred million dollars. How would you have spent it? Oh, <laughs>
0: uh, no one's ever asked me that one before. <laughs> how would I have spent it? Um, because well, it seems
1: like what the community did was build a new temple to the arts, which I I think we're learning. Uh, can have diminishing returns in communities, so I'm wondering how what you might have done differently.
0: Sure, sure. That that's that's a really good that's a good way of framing it. I would say, well, the endowment piece for what what we've had in San Antonio, the endowment piece has always been a, a big question mark, and part of the discussion for building the Tobin Center back in the early 2000s, before the first brick was laid, was really having an operational endowment of you know, $30 million to support the activities inside the building. That endowment really was used for the construction instead of that performing su- support for for what happens in the building. So, I mean, if someone's going to hand me a big check, I mean, that kind of big check, the $100 million kind of checks really are long-term investments in the performing arts community. And that's really an endowment. I mean I suppose right now we're talking about building from scratch and really talking about rainy day funds having a, a you know a support structure there but if you know I mean that that's a that's a question that I <laughs> probably won't have to address but it's it's a it's an interesting thought experiment
1: <laughs> and the endowment was meant to support all of the artistic work in the building, it, it was it was spread equally among the companies as it was. Well, it was meant-
0: no, so so basically that th- that thirty million dollars ne- never materialized in an endowment. So I mean, basically it was spent on the construction of the building rather than supporting what was happening in it. Granted, there are construction overruns. There's you know, there's the need for maintenance support and endowment for the hall. All that is great, but you know, all of a sudden we had, there was a large capital investment on bricks and mortar. And then everyone assumed that, oh, the arts institutions will just take care of themselves. And that's, that assumption wasn't a good assumption.
1: Right. Because even the larger the building, the more expensive it is to run alone.
0: Right. So basically, the idea for the operational model was that the local arts organizations you know, that are using the building as nonprofits were going to have 70 to 80 percent of the dates and supply 20 or 30 percent of the money. But then on the flip side, the Tobin Center was going to raise or earn 70 percent or 80 percent of their uh, revenue by booking those other 20 or 30 percent of dates. So that basically creates a competition for for time in the building, and then all- for like touring productions or one off concerts. That type right. of thing, right? Gotcha. Right, exactly. So basically, you have like a, a for profit company being run in support of the nonprofit mission to the tune of eighty twenty, but right now we're, we're not there, you know. So really, it's it's basically a a, a for profit en- enterprise at the moment.
1: So how are you presenting yourself to your community as not the symphony, as, as an organization that will do things differently henceforth?
0: Yeah, I mean, that is, um, that is really the question that we get the most. And really, right now, I suppose it, the, the basic question is, we don't have a prescription for what this is going to look like, where it's going to organically grow to what it what it can be and what it needs to be and what the community wants. And so part of that is reaching out to maybe different parts of the community that have not felt invited or not that they weren't welcomed before, but just invited. And so we're trying to get out into different parts of the community or at least reach out to those parts of the community in a new way. And really basically just, just be here for, for people. I mean, at the moment, you know we can't do everything that we want, but we've started with our core things, which is getting the audience back in the hall and getting out into the schools for the young people's concerts. And maybe that's, that's probably the biggest change right now. We're going out into the community schools rather than having people brought in. So it's basically engaging people where they are rather than having them brought in to us if that makes sense
1: now i don't want to forget that i'm speaking primarily to an artist so i want to know how this past year of leadership has been what what in your artistic training has been particularly useful and what do you think you've had to kind of learn from scratch
0: as far as like my musical training the thing that i think is different from musicians Leading anything is the fact that we're used to working with a lot of different people in a in an ensemble, and basically, in orchestra, you're you might be called a principal, you might be called this or that, but really everyone is there together, working at the same time. So that part of the leadership is really finding group consensus and you know listening louder than you're talking. So that has been maybe an easier thing for, for artists to do, or, or at least classical musician, orchestral musicians, you know, part of being in an orchestral, in, in an orchestra and having this job is, is, you know, serving on a lot of different committees. I've served on committees for, you know, t- you know, since I joined the orchestra. And so I've had that kind of on the job training for the last 25 years as well. So I, I think there's that, there's that aspect of orchestral life that really you don't become aware of until you you get the job and you know some people are disposed to it and other people aren't but you know it's important work to keep the organization going and to represent the group as an ensemble and then
1: just you know our um the chancellor of our school is a bassoonist and the dean of the music school is a bassoonist what (laughs) What's up
0: with What's going on? Well, I think it's after you figure out how to make reeds, a lot of your time... (laughs) (laughs) A lot of your time is open again. So for the first 20 years of your existence as a bassoon player, uh, you got to figure that part out. Then after you figure it out, you... (laughs) You got you got a little bit more free time than you thought you had before. <laughs> uh,
1: that's a secret. Making the reads, okay, now I know. And then, how have you had time? How how has your musicianship, the the amount you can rehearse and play, been affected by this new role?
0: Um, it's been okay up until recently. I I just had COVID, and so I've had to take like this this past week off and this upcoming week off. It's been a challenge, you know, orchestral life, when you're really busy, it's easy to stay on top of things, uh, physically and then coming out of the pandemic. And then with trying to do this, it's the, the physical part of this has been, um, more difficult than it, than it has been for me in the past. And maybe it's just cause I'm getting old. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> mm. You mean
1: the yeah. actual, the, the physical part of playing the bassoon?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I see. The the non-physical part gets easier as you get older, but the physical part, you know, um I mean there's something about just, you know, there's the riding your bike and the riding the bike aspect of performance. Uh and then there's like if you're doing it every day, you're just in the zone. But with the amount of time I've spent here and with the pandemic and the reduced schedule, there's, there's more time off in between. So the physical part has been more challenging for me personally.
1: And you're, you're recuperating okay from COVID?
0: Yeah, this is my second go around. And um, yeah, this has been easier for me than the first time. Okay, glad to hear it.
1: What do you think would make it easier for artists such as you in a new institution to share their artistry with their community? If you could snap your fingers and change the way something works what might that be?
0: You know, it's been interesting having more determination about what we can do and having more involvement as, as a musician for how things happen out in the community or what our planning is. And some of the dissatisfaction, not, not maybe for me as much, but, you know, some of the dissatisfaction about the artistic life that orchestral musicians lead is really that a lot of those decisions as far as repertoire, what, you know, where you're going, how you're playing, who you're playing with are decided for you. So I think part of having a more engagement as a, as a person, as a musician in the orchestra is, is having maybe a a little bit more control over that kind of decision-making.
1: Do you know of any other ensemble, large ensemble where that does happen, where the musicians do have some say in the repertoire?
0: I feel like St. Paul Chamber Orchestra started to do something like this. It's more to the extent that how structurally you, you set that up. And that's a question for us going forward. How? Yeah, you know that's my next question. How yeah. are you going to set that up? So, I mean, really, really right now it's been like the four or five musicians with a lot of input from a lot of different people talking about what, what is possible. A lot of people are offering help from outside as far as guest conductors, guest artists, and how, who makes those decisions about repertoire. So we've had kind of a committee that's been doing that. And I try to stay out of that because I'm pretty happy doing whatever it is. (laughs) Um, but ha- having that kind of engagement from from the musicians in the orchestra themselves, I think, is new and different. And it at least feels different to me. I don't know if it feels different to everyone in the orchestra or
1: not. How did you set this first season?
0: Very, very quickly.
1: <laughs> yeah. Because I also noticed it had a world premiere, which is awesome. World premiere by a local composer.
0: Yeah, that was great. So he's at uh, a local college here professor local college Utah, university of texas san antonio that work was sort of thought about with the symphony beforehand but then it you know with the pandemic and the bankruptcy it resurfaced for us and it was like well yeah of course we want to involve as many local artists as we can that includes composers so it was just a wonderful thing to have, uh, you know have happen
1: and then finally what advice do you have for a bassoonist currently in conservatory, like ours, who's just starting to map out their
0: career. Figure out how to make the reeds and then you have a lot of free time. <laughs> <laughs> then you can run the world, apparently. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, no, I, I think part of that is just knowing that your your work life is going to be more than auditions and practicing So I I think part of the preparation that maybe needs to happen in in colleges is basically an an awareness of what the non-performance parts of the job entail or can entail. It's not like it's required, but but basically, well, like serving on committees, Uh you know, the interpersonal skills that you have to wind up developing or using are, are very important, you know, basically being a successful colleague, you know, makes your life a lot happier and, and really, really working well with other people. It just makes the job much more enjoyable.
1: When do you think you'll be ready to hand the reins over to somebody <laughs> About else? About two weeks from now. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: no, I mean, well, I mean, our, our, the terms on the board are two years. So, okay. you know, so I, I guess if that answers that question obliquely, then that, I I don't it feels like there needs to be some security going forward. But then, you know, it seems like one of the large jobs of any of anyone in the chair in any institution is, you know, the succession of what what comes after.
1: But I'm guessing in your situation, the musicians will be more involved in the search than maybe in other organizations. And so what do you think in particular you're going to be looking for in your next leader?
0: you know, just love of the art form, really wanting to see the art form flourish in San Antonio. And it's it's that kind of shift in the culture of what the performing arts does for San Antonio that I think really needs to be focused on. Like we were talking earlier, I think a lot of the focus has been on, well, if we just build a better building, the arts will take care of themselves. And I think there needs to be a focus on running the nonprofit institution of the orchestra and how that relates to the venue, the community, and just what's possible going forward.
1: If you'd like to learn more about Brian and read a longer version of this interview, please head to uncsa.edu slash artrestart. Be sure to subscribe or follow us so you don't miss an episode and there's some really wonderful ones coming down the pike, a great variety of artists who are shaking up the status quo. Special thanks to Tito Munoz. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Pierre Carlos Lenti, and on behalf of the Kenan Institute for
0: the Arts, thank you for listening.